you'd open your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 1. chapter 1, and uh, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, now as we seek to understand your word, give us guidance. We pray that uh, we would plummet deeply to see the doctrines that are here, that we'd understand them as applying to us, not just to these systems that have been talked about in church history, God, but that we apply to ourselves as well as to understand what they really mean, and how they work. God, I pray that you would uh, keep me from error, that you would uh, quell nerves and all the like things. I pray that you would be glorified above all as we attempt to see your grace for all of its majesty, for all of its wonder, for all of its creative power. God, I pray that you would enable us to do it. I pray that your spirit would be with us now as we worship through the preaching of the word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 1. Paul, an apostle by the will of God, and to the saints who are in Ephesus, and faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, by which he has made us accepted in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, according to the riches of his grace, which he made to abound toward us in all wisdom and prudence, having made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure that which he purposed in himself, that in the dispensation of the fullness of times he might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth. In him in whom we have obtained an inheritance being predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. That we first, excuse me, that we who first trusted in Christ should be to the praise of his glory. In him you also trusted, after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also, having believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of his glory. If you will now go to Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1. And you he made alive, who were dead in trespasses and sins, in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of power of the air, and the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience, among whom also we all once conducted ourselves in the lust of the flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, just as the others. 
But God, who is rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up together and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Tonight, we will continue to march forward in our series on the Protestant Reformation and its five major doctrinal distinctives, which are referred to as solas, sola being the Latin word for alone. It's this word alone, really, in the solas that's the operative word in these doctrines or distinctives. Because even the Roman Catholic Church in our day, as well as in the day of the Reformers, very much used the words scripture, grace, faith, God's glory, and all with respect to salvation. Tim began the series by looking at the distinctive of sola scriptura, or scripture alone, which is the doctrine that scripture alone is the primary and absolute source for all doctrine and practice, for faith, knowledge, and morality. Scripture has the final authority as it is to function in the rule, as the rule of the faith over against church tradition or experience, the words of men, including of papacy. And Scripture is sufficient and clear to function in this way. Sola Scriptura rests on the fact that Scripture is a direct revelation from God, and as such, it has a divine authority. God has brought it forth, and thus Scripture is his word to man. And last week, we looked at the distinctive of solus Christus, or Christ alone. Matt showed that Christ alone is the head of the church, mainly looking at Ephesians 4. He's the head of a church because salvation is found in him alone. It's him alone who can offer, operate as a high priest. No pope, no council has the right to claim the title of head, as this defies the teaching in Ephesians 4, where Paul urges believers to grow up into the head of the body, which is Christ. And so now we begin to look at the third distinctive of the Reformation, sola gratia, or grace alone. The Reformers all believed that salvation was by God's grace alone. Now, grace is a common word in Christian vernacular. We use it all the time. We just sang about it. We use uh, it in our, in our speaking with to each other. We sing songs titled Amazing Grace, greater than, Grace Greater Than All of Our Sin. The Roman Catholic Church uses the word grace as well. Phrases such as state of grace, means of grace, grace of justification. But what is this grace exactly? And how did the Reformers' very different understanding of it cause them to risk excommunication, removal of their livelihood, and even death in the demand that Rome reform her doctrine or the church be separated? To see this, we have to delve deep into Catholic theology, into Rome's doctrine of salvation in the days of the Reformation, to see that the issue really, again, hangs on the word alone. So, as we talk about grace moving forward, I'd like to just throw a qualification out. 
I'm only going to try and use the word grace in a salvific sense. So I'm not going to be referring to any idea of common grace or maybe prevenient grace, but only salvific grace, grace dealing with uh, salvation. Because this is where the most important issues lie in the Reformation. In the early days of the Reformation, the early 1500s, there wasn't a single document or council, really, that articulated a uniform view of the church's view of grace. There was church tradition. There was decrees of the popes. And this is seen as sufficient because authority in the Roman Catholic system comes from the pope as the vicar of Christ. The church held, the Roman church held, that Christ has all authority in heaven and on earth. And he has given this authority to his apostles, most specifically Peter the head. Rome drew this conclusion from a misunderstanding of Matthew chapter 16, verse 19, where it reads, And I will give to thee the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatsoever thou shalt bind upon earth, it shall be bound also in heaven. And whatsoever thou shalt loose on earth, shall also be loosed in heaven. This binding and loosening was understood to mean that whoever Holy Mother Church, with the vicar as its head, excluded from communion, would then be excluded from communion with God. And whomever she received into her communion, God would welcome. So reconciliation and right standing with the church is inseparable from reconciliation and right standing with God. This line of the vicar of Christ began with Peter and continued onward in the office of the papacy. The pope then, as the head of the church, held the keys to heaven and was appointed by Christ himself to do so. And thus carried the authority of Christ as the God-man. So the Pope, like Peter, is the head, and the bishops would be the successors to the apostles. And so there's a a sense of parallel here. Peter and the apostles are to be seen in some ways as the Pope and the bishops. There's a parallel there. And power and authority are tied to this line. And they have the right and the ability to ordain priests who would function as extension of themselves. How would these priests operate? They would issue sacraments. Sacraments were a necessity for a number of reasons. The first of which is having to do with the back to the priesthood. There's no way the bishops and the pope could do all the, the requirements of their mediatorial office. There's no way they could serve all of Europe. The pope is one man. There's some 40 bishops. So they had to have extensions of themselves to go out into the land to be able to administer God's grace. Because in their view, they, the church, are grace. They are a form of grace. And they mediate this grace out in the sacraments. So the sacraments are a necessity of salvation in the Roman Catholic understanding. And more specifically, they are how one is justified before God and able to enter into paradise. There are seven main sacraments. In the medieval church, there's still seven today, really. Baptism, mass, confirmation, penance, holy orders, marriage, and extreme unction. Holy orders is actually the sacrament that would unite the priesthood to the bishops. So a bishop would ordain a priest in the sacrament of holy order, and thus the spirit would see this and honor and unite the priest as an extension of Holy Church out into the land. 
And so sacraments became the means of grace. That word was used often by Rome. And God would dispense his grace to, this, just to the sinner so a relationship could be restored and that the sinner could be justified in God's presence. And this was seen as a process throughout all of life. The grace was first conferred at baptism. Trinitarian baptism dealt with or washed away the stain of one's original sin and thus dealt with their eternal punishment that their sin nature carried. Baptism also would deal with their pre-baptismal sins that it committed if a person was baptized later in life, for instance. Anyone who was baptized in the fashion that sought to uphold what the church meant as baptism was put in a state of grace, or what's sometimes referred to by Rome as an initial justification. Baptism was done usually in infancy, but it could be done later, as I said. This grace was something that was wrought by the Spirit of God in conjunction with the authority that Christ had given to the church. So in a sense, the church is wielding it. They're wielding the Spirit. They probably wouldn't agree with that language, but that's certainly what would, how it would function. In Rome's eyes, grace was something that was done to or for a person in this way. So for instance, in baptism, it didn't matter if a child was able to make a profession of faith. Because grace was meted out by the authority and power of the priest being connected to this line of church. And so there was no need necessarily for a profession of faith. The sacrament would still be efficacious and create this removal of original sin. And as individuals before were fallen in Adam, they are now renewed and baptized into Christ and consequently the church. The state of grace is maintained and increased by other sacraments, most common uh, being the penance and mass. Those individuals who had taken the baptism still had something of an issue because they weren't perfect yet. They couldn't enter into God's presence yet if they died because they weren't perfect. Because that's, in Rome's view, what takes to be justified. You must be made perfect. And so they had to do penance. Penance would do away with sins. And there are two main sins in Rome's system. There's venial sin and mortal sin. Venial sin are seen as less severe They could never separate you from the state of grace. They couldn't condemn you or banish you outside of the grace of your baptism. But they did carry a temporal penalty, which you had to uh, deal with in either in a sacrament of confession or by taking the mass to receive absolution. And if you had died without receiving this absolution, the sin that was there still not dealt with would be purged. And hence the doctrine of purgatory was taught by the Roman church. Purgatory was not something that was very looked forward to. Who wants to spend thousands of years doing penance? So, but that certainly beats the alternative of committing a mortal sin. A mortal sin would place individuals under damnation unless absolution was received. This absolution was received through penance, again as mass, in a much more extensive process for both the priest and for the sinner. And keep in mind that this, it's the existence of the church and her authority as given by Christ that makes these sacraments function. The church herself, again, is seen as acting as a means of grace. And so we come now to the mass. The mass is the chief of the sacraments as defined by Rome. In the Mass, a priest calls upon God, who, because of the priest being united to the line of the Holy Church, 
God would then change the elements of the bread and wine to the body and blood of Jesus in their essence or substance. This happened though the outward appearance or qualities might still appear as bread and wine. But the body and blood of Jesus are then represented to God as a propitiation. So the priest performs his consecration in Latin, a language that the people didn't even understand really at the time. Didn't matter, right? Because the right and the power is tied to the priests being united to the church. Whether or not the individuals receiving Mass were as faithful or were able to understand as much is not the issue here. The issue is, is the priest a valid priest? Is the priest a true priest? Is he connected to the church? And so the priest would represent first the sacrifice to God and then pass the elements out to the congregation. Rome sees this as what Jesus instituted at the Last Supper. The priest plays the role of Christ in the sacrament. And this repetitive practice of partaking of the body and blood puts more of Christ in an individual, whereby they are made more like him. And this mysterious process, again, a means of grace, would aid an individual's increase of faith, his increase of justification, Rome would say. It would empower them to increase in holiness and therefore justification. So as we see from examining the sacramental system and the nature of church authority and the grace it dispenses, that if the authority of the Pope and of this church are undermined, then most of the system collapses. And this is exactly what the Reformers brought to the forefront. Luther, in his disputations with the church and at the Diet of Worms, had challenged papal infallibility, showing that the councils had contradicted themselves and popes had contradicted themselves and called people to look to Scripture alone as the rule of faith. Luther lived on to continue pastoring and publishing disputations, as well as encouraging others to examine all the doctrine in light of Scripture that Rome taught, as well as himself. He published the Bible in German to be read by the common man, a practice that was absolutely unacceptable by Rome. And he changed and reformed worship. He did away with the sacraments with the exception of a reformulated Lord's table, no longer called a mass, but a Lord's table, and baptism. And he placed the preaching of the word as the main way that the Lord would deal with his people. This would seem as a new means of grace. This new approach to the Christian life spread rapidly. It inspired many others to come along and continue this process of reformation as the church. Uh, excuse me, as men plumbed the scripture, they began to teach that man is justified by God's grace alone, through faith alone. In Christ alone. And that word alone was crucial for the reformers. Because in these men's minds, there was no vicar. God wouldn't contradict himself. No council or magisterium of the church would be contradictory if it was truly attached to God. The only thing that was sure was scripture. Unchanging scripture. This view of the sacramental authority, therefore, of Rome was now seen as unbiblical. And the Bible was the criterion of truth. These challenges uh, would not be all perfectly articulated consistently. It would take time for the reformers to sort of work out all the ramifications, but the pieces were there. And Rome responded to these reformers full well in the Council of Trent. Trent would be the first real formulated doctrinally conscious document of the Roman church addressing justification in such a uh, conclusive way. It addressed the reformers specifically and their new teachings directly. And what it amounted to was a doubling down of Rome on her doctrine. I'm just going to read for you 
a couple of quotations from Trent. Trent on justification. If one saith that men are justified either by the sole imputation of the justice of Christ or by the sole remission of sins to the exclusion of the grace and the charity which is poured out in their hearts by the Holy Ghost and is inherent in them, or even that grace whereby we are justified is only the favor of God, let him be anathema. Anathema is a word taken directly from the scriptures. It's used by Paul to describe those who are outside the faith. See here what Rome is doing in Trent is trying to wield authority as a sword. You teach these things, you are outside the faith. And Rome very much thought she had the power to banish and excommunicate in this way. They would go on to say on justification, if one says that the good works of one that is justified are in such a manner the gifts of God, and that they are not also merits from him that is justified, or that uh, the said justified by good works which he performs through the grace of God and the merit of Jesus Christ, whose living member he is, does not truly merit increase of grace, eternal life, and the attainment of that eternal life, if be so, however, that he departing grace and also an increase of glory, let him be anathema. Trent on the sacraments. If anyone says that the sacraments of the new law are not necessary unto salvation but superfluous, that without them or without the desire thereof men might obtain of God through faith alone the grace of justification, though all sacraments are not indeed necessary for every individual, let him be anathema. Let him be cut off. This is very much a big problem for the Reformers. They would go on also in Trent to say that their doctrine is irreformable henceforth. It's irreformable, can't be changed. Why would it need to be? In Rome's system, it was the church's tradition and the authority of her pope that actually granted authority, that, that, that contained the authority, not scripture. Scripture was not their ultimate standard. And so there was no need to be able to reform on the basis of Scripture because church tradition and the decrees of the Pope were equal. And so we must now ask the question, what does the Bible teach about grace and justification? How is an individual justified before God? The Bible is clear that all men will stand before God in judgment as is a point in Hebrews 9.27 it is appointed unto men once to die, but after this comes judgment. How will you or I, standing before a holy, all-powerful God who made us, made the universe, avoid condemnation for our sins and enter into his presence in paradise? I want to now, in the time remaining, survey some biblical texts. We'll start in the Old Testament. And look at pictures to show that justification is totally by God's grace on the basis of Jesus Christ alone. That God in the new birth unites individuals to Jesus Christ and that this union is done by God's grace alone. This individual is then declared righteous or justified because of the sufficiency of Jesus' righteousness in his divine nature, in his perfect sacrifice. So we'll turn first to Genesis chapter 15.
In Genesis 15, we're going to read about God's ratification of his covenant with Abraham. In Genesis 12, God had already called him to leave his country. And he told him and prophesied that he would, be, uh, he would make him a great nation, and in him all the families of the earth should be blessed. So we'll pick up in chapter 15, verse 1. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram, saying in a vision, Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield, your exceedingly great reward. But Abram said, Lord, God, what will you give me, seeing I go childless, and the heir of my house is Eleazar of Damascus? Then Abraham said, Look, you have given me no offspring. Indeed, one born in my own house is my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, saying, This one shall not be your heir, but the one who will come from your own body shall be your heir. And then he brought him outside and said, Look toward the heaven and count the stars if you are able to number them. And he said to them, So shall be your descendants. And Abram believed in the Lord, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. And then he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give this land to you and inherit it. He said, Lord God, how shall I know that I will inherit it? And so God said to him, Bring me a three-year-old heifer, a three-year-old female goat, a three-year-old ram, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And then he brought all these to him and cut them in two down the middle and placed them on opposite sides of one another. But he did not cut the birds in two. But the vultures came down in the car- on the carcasses, and Abram drove them away. And now when the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell upon Abram, and behold, horror and great darkness fell upon him. And then he said to Abram, Certainly, or excuse me, know certainly that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs, and will serve them, and they will afflict them four hundred years. And also that the nation whom they serve I will judge, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. Now as for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried at a good old age. But in the fourth generation they shall return here, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. It came to pass, when the sun went down and was dark, behold, there was a smoking oven and a burning torch that passed between the pieces. And on the same day the Lord made a covenant with Abraham, saying, To your descendants I have given this land, from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the Kenites, the Kenizzites, and the Cadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, and the Rephaim, and the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. When we look at this text, the first thing we need to notice is that God is the first mover. God is actually the one who seeks out Abraham. God tells Abraham that he will be his reward. He tells him that he will be a shield as well. God uses reward language because Abraham had just actually refused a reward in the conquer, in, uh, successfully taking back Lot from kings in a nearby area. And he refused to take loot though he was successful in rescuing his brother. And so the Lord, seeing that, saying, don't worry, I am your reward, I am your shield. Abraham's response is that he has no offspring. Lord, you're my reward. What type of reward will this be? I have no offspring. I have no heir. You've talked about descendants. That's the spirit of Abraham here. And God reaffirms the covenant and tells Abraham he will have an heir of his own body. Abram then calls and said, Lord, how will I know? How will I know this? Because he's still childless. So God does something very interesting. He has Abram cut animals in half and take the pieces and place them opposite one another. And then the Lord waits until Abram falls asleep. He shows him all that will happen. And Abram wakes up to see that God, pictured as an oven and a burning torch, ratifying the covenant with himself, 
He alone passes through this covenant. Abram is kept away from it. This is God showing Abram that he is taking responsibility for this covenant. He will see it to completion. And the idea of the two animals is that if it fails, then what has happened to the parties entering into the covenant should be done as like the animals, that they themselves should be cut in half. So we see here God, God declaring that he will do this. He alone in the covenant. And this is what God had always been doing in Genesis. He'd come previously to Noah to save him. And he says, the Bible says that Noah had found favor in the eyes of the Lord. God had sovereignly raised up Joseph at the end of the book of Genesis and orchestrated the entire sale of his slavery by his own brothers that would ultimately place him in a position of power to be able to save them, the ones who betrayed him in their time of need. And so we see that the Lord is always about this sovereignty in orchestrating the events in the book of Genesis. And that he's also going to bring about a people to himself through Abraham. And this language would become normal throughout the Old Testament. In Deuteronomy, as people are going to take the land, the Lord says to them in Deuteronomy 9, chapter 6, or excuse me, chapter 9, verse 6, and following, Know therefore today that whoever goes before you before, as a, before you as a consuming fire is the Lord your God. He will destroy them and subdue them before you, and you shall so you shall drive them out and make them perish quickly, as the Lord has promised you. Do not say in your heart, after the Lord your God has thrusted them out before you, it is because of my righteousness that the Lord has brought me into this, possess this land. Whereas it is because of your wickedness of these nations that the Lord is driving them out before you. Not because of your righteousness or the uprightness of your heart as you are going in to possess the land, because of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord is driving them out. And that he may confirm the war that he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Know, therefore, that the Lord your God is not giving you this good land to possess because of your righteousness, for you, in fact, are a stubborn people. Remember and do not forget how you provoked the Lord to wrath in the wilderness from the day you came out of the land of Egypt until you came to this place, and you have, rebe- you have been rebellious against the Lord. Even at Horeb you provoked the Lord to wrath, and the Lord was angry with you so that he was ready to destroy you. Moses then reminds them of the covenant that they broke by building a golden calf. Moses himself actually had to go intercede for the people. He begs the Lord in his intercession to not leave from his people, to to go with them, to continue to go with them. Because he had said that Moses had found, in fact, favor in his eyes. And the Lord's response is this. What you have said is a good thing. Uh, My presence will go with you and I will give you rest. And the Lord said that this thing you have spoken I will do, for you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. And Moses' response is, show me your glory, God. And he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you, and will proclaim to you, before you, my name, the name of the Lord. That I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will show mercy on whom I show mercy. Like Abraham, Moses is... is, uh, Assurance is left to be in God's gracious hands, in God's sovereign hands. He trusts on God's graciousness to go with him and with the people. So the covenant is renewed, the bend of Exodus. God fills the temple with his, <clears throat> at the end of this interception uh, by Moses, with his glory in the midst. So that we have a picture of what the end of history actually will look like. We have God who has been gracious to his people and is dwelling among them. 
And the similar language is used in the book of Revelation as parallels. So this language and this idea is will begin to shape how the New Testament writers think about grace and covenant. But they will have a fuller understanding of it because of Christ coming into history as the revelation of God's grace. Listen to John chapter 1, verses 14 to 18. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son of the Father, full of grace and truth. And this was him who said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, and grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God. He who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. Notice that Jesus' revelation of God and his grace is contrasted to Moses'. John says no one has seen God at any time. That's actually kind of true. Moses saw God, but not like this. That's the point, not like this. Jesus is going to reveal God in a more superior way, and the nature of that revelation will be grace upon grace upon grace. So Christ is shown in the New Testament as a fulfillment and the achievement of God's promises. For the New Testament writers, the grace of God is God's uniting a person with Christ. It is union with Christ. And the New Testament is full of pictures as to what this union looks like. It's pictured as a marital union at times in Ephesians 5. An idea is picked up again from the Old Testament where God refers to his people as a bride. In the book of Revelation, again marriage, depicted between God, or excuse me, Christ and his people. There's also the language to illustrate union in the language of a new covenant. This new covenant is meant to be contrasted against the old covenant that was broken by the Israelites. This idea originates in the Old Testament as well in Jeremiah. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, that I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant I made with their fathers on the day that I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, again marital language, For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord, that I will put my law within them. I will write it in their hearts. I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And they shall no longer teach each one to his neighbor and say to his brother, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. The writer of Hebrews spends three chapters unpacking how this new covenant is mediated by Jesus Christ in his work as high priest. Three chapters, chapter 7 to 10. We don't have time to do it tonight, but I challenge, or encourage you, go read it. It's, it's incredible. And notice again, the language here is clear that God is the one doing the acting. God is the one performing these things. God's changing hearts and putting in uh, spirits, like in Ezekiel. He says, I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into a land. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness and from all your idols I will cleanse you. I will give you a new heart. I will put a new spirit within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes. Once again, God pictured here is doing the work. God is doing this work of salvation of a people by putting his spirit in them. It's not something that man can do. Man cannot command the spirit of God to come inside of him. 
Jesus references this in exchange with Nicodemus, telling him that unless you're born again, you can't see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus doesn't understand what he's saying. And so Jesus answers him with sort of a paraphrastic language of Ezekiel, saying, unless one is born of water and of spirit, he can't see the kingdom. And that which is flesh is flesh. That which is born of the spirit is a spirit. Perhaps the clearest person to use language of God's gracious union with Christ is Paul. Let's look again at Ephesians chapter 2, verses 4 to 7. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 4. But God, who is rich in mercy, because of his great love which with he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, and raised us up together, that he might, excuse me, and raised us up together, and made us sit together in the heavenly places, that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. Here, Union with Christ is done by God. God unites us. God makes you alive. He, while you are dead, makes you alive. He unites you to Christ and raises you up. How will you be seated in the heavenly places in verse 6? And made us to sit in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. That in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace. In his kindness towards us. How? In Christ Jesus. Very similar language used by Paul in Galatians chapter 2, verses 20 to 21, where Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And I, the life I now live, I live in the flesh. I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God. For if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. In this text, Paul is making explicitly clear the connection between God's saving grace and union to Christ. He first describes it, being crucified with Christ, being raised with Christ, and then he says that he will not set aside this grace or the grace of God, which is what this union actually is. But Paul won't stop here in the discussion of grace. Look at Ephesians chapter 2 again, but now let's pick it up in verse 8. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, such that anyone would boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Here Paul calls faith a gift of God, and he ties it to God's gracious action. You see, for Paul... God's sovereign grace creates. It creates faith. It creates. That's why often we use the language of being a new creation. You must have a renewed mind. Notice also that Paul makes a mention that all this was prepared beforehand in verse 10. We are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus, that we should walk in them, excuse me, 
We are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. This is God's doctrine of election at display here. God has a particular people that he is saving by grace alone, and that this grace produces even their faith. Let's go now to Romans, where Paul is going to put the whole picture together for us. A common text that I'm sure many have read. It's a great text. Um, Romans chapter 8. Beginning in verse 28, we read, And we know that all things work together for those who, are call- for those who love God to those who are called according to his purpose. For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he called, excuse me, moreover, whom he predestined, these he also called. Whom he called, these he justified. And whom he justified, these he also glorified. What shall we say then to these things? It is, if God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Who will bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. If you are sitting here today, or if I am sitting here today, and I am, or you are in a right relationship to God in, through union with Jesus Christ, it is because God Almighty has foreknown you. Not meaning that he would look into the future and see what you might choose. And then on the basis of this, choose you back. As if he didn't know all things at all time. But meaning that he would know you in a relationship. and He, he predestined you, if you are in Christ, to be conformed to his image, the image of Christ. He called you. And he justified you. This is the glorious grace of God. It's total. It's decisive. And it's effective. It's perfectly effective. This doctrine of God's election seems scary at first, actually. When I first encountered it, it was quite a weighty doctrine, to be sure. We must understand that God's electing grace is actually the only way that you can be saved. Because the real issue is that no one seeks God. No one wants anything to do with God apart from his grace. Paul, in Romans chapter 3, explicitly says, There is none righteous, no, not one. No one who understands. No one seeks after God. They've all turned aside. Together they become worthless. Remember again Jesus' words to Nicodemus, That which is flesh is flesh. That which is spirit is spirit. Jesus would further articulate this view that the Father would have to draw men to him in order for them to come in John chapter 6 when he says, I am the bread of life, but whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. And I said to you, you have seen me, and yet you do not believe. And the Father gives me, excuse me, all that the Father gives me will come to me, and whomever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it at the last day. 
For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life. Now I'll raise it, him up on the last day. This is a hard doctrine for the natural man to hear. But we must hear it. Jesus doesn't shy away from it. Paul doesn't shy away from it. Paul says we're dead. Jesus says no one can come to him unless the Father sent him draw him. Even Jesus' own disciples struggled to hear these words, saying, This is a hard saying, Jesus. Who can listen to it? And Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, Do not take offense at this. Then what, excuse me, then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. And the words I have spoken to you are spirit and life. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning those who did not believe him and who it was who would betray him. And he said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless the Father has granted it. So we need to ask ourselves, do we accept this biblical truth? Do we have the biblical view of ourselves? Or do I or you view faith as something that we produced on our own apart from God? Apart from God's grace? Were you smart enough? Was I smart enough? Humble enough to choose God apart from his calling me first? Are you trying to make faith, are we trying to make faith a work that we can rest on? Are we trying to rest in our own sufficient faith as a work that we do, something that has to be increased, or are we resting in God's gracious, effectual calling? Listen to the words of Luther. On Speaking on the Paul's epistle of uh, Titus, he says, Paul discards all boasted free will, all human virtue, righteousness, and good works. He concludes that they are all nothing and wholly perverted, however brilliant and worthy they may appear, and teaches that we must be saved solely by the grace of God, which is effective for all believers who desire it from a correct conception of their own ruin and nothingness. Yes, dear friend, you must first possess heaven and salvation before you can do a good work. Works never merit heaven. Heaven is conferred purely by grace. The delusion of, excuse me, the delusive doctrine of works blinds the Christian's eyes and perverts the right understanding of faith and forces him from the way of salvation. He who does not receive salvation through grace, independently of all good works, will certainly never secure it. You see, just like for Moses, just like for Abraham, for us, God's grace alone is the only basis for an eternal security, or what we might call the perseverance of the faith. And in order for it to be grace, it cannot be demanded. It has to be free. So, what will we do? Will we stay with the Reformation in this understanding of the biblical truth? Will we trust that the one who has called us has justified us, will one day glorify us in the resurrection? If you ever wanted a picture of grace alone, the resurrection of the dead by Jesus for those who are in him is about as clear as it can get. Dead men can't do anything. They are the definition of powerless. And what does it say? Those who are in him, those who have been united with him, be glorified 
that he will raise them up on the last day. So is our faith in that grace, in that sufficient, perfect, unfailing grace? Or is it in ourselves? Romans and Galatians were especially used by the reformers to counter the Roman Catholic sacramentalism of grace and faith plus works for justification, or the increase of justification, one might say. These doctrines might look a little different for the varied Reformed traditions or for the Lutheran traditions, but the common distinctive of salvation and justification was grace alone. Let us take for our backbone as well the doctrine of grace alone, and let us trust solely in the Lord who recreates, who puts us in a second Adam, and who will raise us from the dead. Let us pray. God, your word is, is, speaks of promises that we have a hard time of understanding. In the same way, if we were there at creation, God, to see your splendor, to see the incredible power that you display in the, the diverse world you created, so also let us look and see the, the creative grace that you use to build men into new men, to put them into Christ. Help us to trust in that grace. Only that grace. Pray that as we go forth, we would meditate more on the scriptures, that we would seek to read your word where grace is talked about often, and that we would bank only in the sufficiency of Jesus Christ as the basis for this grace in standing right before you, God of the universe, help us to understand what it means that the judge, God, you have stepped into history in Christ. The one who judges us, the one who made us, the one who we owe account has stepped into history. And so if you have justified us, there can be no increase. There can be no more. It's done. It's finished, as Jesus said. So help us to seize these promises by faith Help us to understand the sufficiency of your Son and turn to him alone. These things we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.